Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Live Longer, the podcast, as I continue series two, The Art of Living, with a very special guest today. And this is Hand in Hand with Iona, a digital healthcare company that I established with a number of colleagues to enable people live longer, healthier life, and in collaboration with Changemakers Programme at Cambridge University. Now, today I have a very special guest. She was born in 1925 in Cleveland, Ohio, USA. And originally she was destined for the theatre. She trained to be an actress with similar people such as Paul Newman. And she'll tell you about others that she trained with when I introduce her in a moment. And then she went to New York and she was aspiring to be on Broadway. She was immersed in a culture of creative arts. And this ironically led to her career in photojournalism where she had an opportunity to go with a film crew and photograph Einstein. She had a long and rewarding career as a press photographer, and she had opportunities to photograph some very notable individuals such as Indira Gandhi, and we'll cover this in the interview also. She also photographed fashion, and she herself, might I add, is a very fashionable lady, even at this stage in her life. She also wants to do good. She's always wanted to change the world. She's always striving to do better. And this has led to her setting up an award for women who want to change the world, who are photographers. And I can't wait to speak with her about this also. Even though she's at the age of 96, she's about to launch a major exhibition and she's going to tell us a little bit about this. And I'm hoping that many of you will go and see this exhibition. I certainly will. It's at Farley Farm, the former home of Lee Miller and Sir Roland Penrose. She's also about to produce a book and she aspires to have an exhibition of her work at Cambridge University, which we'd love to work hand in hand with herself to open more about that later. But without any further ado, please let me introduce you to Marilyn Stafford. Marilyn, you're very welcome on the show. Thank you for coming. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm just simply delighted to be here. Well, it was really opportunistic how we met, having interviewed your lovely friend and my colleague, Masood Timery, a surgeon who's very interested in photography. And he showcased a lot of your work that he has in his hospital outpatient Department, and that's how I heard about you, and you kindly reached out. So I'm, I'm, I'm the one who's honoured to be able to interview you and hear all about this incredible lifelong career that you've had, and also the the good that you're continuing to do. But I'd love to start off and ask you to just tell me a little bit more about the girl who grew up in the era of Shirley Temple, and how did you become this wonderful photographer? Well, it all started out, as you say with Shirley Temple, I suppose, because all the mums at the time wanted their little darling girls to be blonde, curly-haired, little Shirley Temple singing and dancing and performing and, of course, also becoming great stars. So we were all, I suppose, pushed forward to be little performers. And at a very early age, I was chosen to represent my school for a new group of children theater at a lovely place called the Cleveland Playhouse. And that was a local theater, which was part of a group of theaters across the United States who were separating themselves from the manacles of Broadway. And uh, this group of children's theaters started by asking each school to select 
a pupil to represent them. For some reason, I guess I was one of those little pupils who selected. And um, I remember the first day we were there, we were in a small theater, and every one of us had to get up on the stage and say one line. And that one line was, bring that man to me. (laughs) And it was rather interesting to see all of the different variations on that particular line. How did you say it, Marilyn? Oh, I can't remember. (laughs) I can't remember. But uh, we all did. And Paul Newman was amongst those kids at the time. Mm -hmm. He was, I think, a bit older than me, so I never really knew him. But um, there was another young child uh, who was Joel Gray. And Joel, of course, you probably remember as the cabaret master in uh, that marvelous movie, Cabaret. And Joel and I would sit together in classes and um, learn the Stanislavski method of acting. He went a long, long way too, Joel. Mm, and fascinating. And so you got a very good grounding and training and then that set you up to ironically go to New York to try and make it on Broadway. Was that what happened, Marilyn? Well, first I went to university and um, I was involved in a theatre group there and I played roles in, in the theatre at the university. And then at one point, I went to New York to try my hand on Broadway because obviously that was the place to go. Interestingly enough, it wasn't Hollywood or films that everyone migrated to at the time. One went to New York, to Broadway. And of course, it was a very difficult sort of thing. You had to go from one agent's office to another and ask that agent would that would he or she represent you and send you out for casting auditions. And I remember one day I went to see one agent and I was really rather shocked because I was wearing a skirt and at that time the skirts came to sort of below the calf. And um I was standing in front of his desk and he said, let me see your legs. (laughs) So I pulled up my skirt a little bit. He said, higher, higher, higher. And I went up to about my knees and he said, hmm, with legs like that, you'd better be a good actress. Oh, my goodness. He'd never get away with it now. (laughs) It's incredible. And um, it wasn't that I was offended. It's just that I do have heavy legs. And so from that moment on, I've always worn trousers. Very rarely wore skirts. Interesting. So it really deeply affected you and and how you held yourself over the years then. That's interesting. Well, it's a tough business, you know, Broadway. And um, I did some summer stock in Vermont, which was lovely. And I also was part of a group called the Equity Library Theatre. And that was an organization set up by the Actors Union Equity for people who were not in the union, but for them to be seen. And they would hire 
the libraries around New York City. And there would be performances. Sometimes they were full performances. Sometimes they were readings. And it was a way of of being seen by directors, producers, or agents. And in your case, a way of meeting them and getting to know them. And, And was that what sort of then led you into becoming one of the crowd per se, so that you were incorporated into this creative milieu? Yes. And um, I met a lot of people that way. Mm. And, you know, when you're young and if you're sort of an aspiring actress, you do everything you possibly can. And um, I took uh, dancing lessons and I took singing lessons and all sorts of things in order to learn. I remember I went once to a singing coach who was Barbara Streisand, the singing coach. Hmm. And um, I sang a little bit and she said, you have to go and have singing lessons first. I won't take you before you have a trained voice. So that kind of stopped me in my tracks. And I didn't do singing lessons until many, many, many years later in Paris. But um, in New York, I did go to dance classes and all sorts of But you had the, things. the the classic triple act singing, dancing and acting then is what I'm oh, hearing. Oh God, yes. You had to you had to know it all. Mm. Yes. Were you under pressure though to you know, with in the midst of the Me Too movement some years ago with Weinstein, was that going on as a culture where men took advantage of women? You've told us that little story about asking to lift your skirt, but you know, did that just become more obvious and more proliferant in society as Hollywood came to the fore? Was that going on in the 30s and 40s, do you think? Oh, I suppose so. I mean, there was always, and it still is, the casting couch and big scandals recently, of course, which uh, have have appeared with big producers who are now very shamed. Yeah, absolutely. But you you escaped from sort of acting. Well, I, I wouldn't like to call it escaped, but you migrated into photography from there, did you? That was rather interesting because amongst the people that I met um, as a young woman in New York were uh, people who were doing documentary photography. And um, I was invited to go to the Museum of Modern Art, where they had uh, films shown of wonderful documentaries. And I'd never heard, you know, known about any of this. And so they opened my eyes to documentary photography. And around that time, somebody, one of the filmmakers had returned from Japan where he had been in the army and he had brought back an old Roliflex and he gave it to me to start taking pictures. And so because I was already in the mindset of documentary photography through the cinema and early documentary films, um, I would go out on the street and take photographs and just hone my technique of learning. And at one point, I, in order to survive, I had to work. And of course, as I wasn't getting any theater work and spending a lot of time just knocking on agents' doors, I 
was able to get a job uh, working with a photographer who was called Francesco Scavulo. And at the time, Scavulo was also just more or less starting out, but he was ahead of me because he was really working. And he had a studio, and I met him through friends, and he took me on as a kind of pickup pins girl. Now, a pickup pins girl was uh, the one who literally picked up the pins after a fashion shoot because the garments on the models were all pulled together at the back to shape them. And when they Mm. finished shooting, the girls went, woof. (laughs) And of course, all the pins shot out and somebody had to clean up the studio. So that was the assistant's job and that was me. (laughs) And I also learned how to do all the darkroom that needed doing, like uh, mixing up the chemicals for the development of the film and I would develop film and I would hang it up to dry and I would after the prints were done by Scabulo, I would have to then wash them and dry them on the drum and clean up the dark room and all that I often wondered whether all that chemical stuff didn't affect me in the lungs because, as I mentioned to you later on, I did have, um, I was diagnosed with sarcoidosis, which is through the lungs. Yes, we'll come to that in a minute because that is actually a very important point. But what I'm hearing here is that you actually didn't just take photographs, you you self-taught. You also learned the technique of printing, which is really important. And as we've all heard the famous quote from Andy Warhol, a photograph is not a photograph until it's printed out. I mean, you learned all of that. And that's a technique that's being maybe lost, is it, in, in modern day times? Well, I learned everything that one had to learn in the darkroom as well as all the lighting and things in the studio, which made me feel that I was even more not interested in studio work. I was interested in getting out on the street and taking pictures of what was actually happening. Yes. I mean, I've seen some of your work um, with the the fashion models and also the children is quite striking that you, you seem to take beautiful pictures of kids. And you did even a documentary very late in your career, didn't you, on kids in Soho? Well, the photographs of the fashion were not because I wanted to be a fashion photographer, but because the door to jobs for women was mainly in both France and in the United States and probably and in England through more the women's area than and the domestic area than in hot straight news and I was propelled in the documentary way but and so I applied that to when I was working in fashion to that area so that I would take the models into the street and use the street as my background rather than a studio. Mm, You were documenting. Yes, I see. That's clever. Mm. I might also add that because I really don't like to fiddle around with all those lights, 
it was easier for me to go in the street and use existing light. Yes, wonderful. And tell me about, so on the documentary theme again and photographing people and really getting behind the story, you had this wonderful opportunity where you went with the director. They were going to do, was it a short film of Einstein and you went up to Princeton. And tell us what happened when your director threw you, um, was it a 35 millimetre and and explained how to use it? (laughs) I love that story. Tell us. Yes. Well, um, there was a young film company that this was after the war, you must remember, and after Hiroshima. And many people were very touched by the terror and horror of atomic warfare. And these young filmmakers wanted to interview Einstein and ask him to speak out against the use of atomic bombs or atomic war. They invited me to join them uh, when they went to photo- to film him in Princeton at his home. And as we were driving there, I was in the back seat of the car with the director and he handed me a 35 millimeter camera, which I had never seen before because I had been using that old Roliflex up until then, which is not a through-the-lens camera. And this was a new, wonderful device, but I really didn't know how to use it. And he taught me how and said, don't worry, we will do everything that's necessary, like setting the speed and the shutters and and all that sort of thing. But all you have to do is focus, and here's how you focus, and here's how you click the shutter. And so that's my introduction to actually using a 35-millimeter camera, which, of course, I adore using because you you have so many more advantages Um with with that kind of lens that with the Roliflex. And we arrived in Princeton, and I really have a vivid memory of walking up a small little path with green grass to a porch and going up the porch steps to this shingled house and... Einstein himself opened the door and uh, let us in. He was very casual and very friendly, very warm. And we walked, I, I can very, very well remember. And of course, now regret that I wasn't taking photographs. <laughs> but can you imagine standing there? taking a photograph of Einstein, opening the door, ushering us in, walking past a clothes rail with his coat hanging on it and a violin case on the floor next to the wall. What a wonderful story. But, of course, I didn't take any of that. But you live to tell the tale, Marilyn. Well, that's true. And um, he took us into his lounge and the producer set up the lights and sat him where he wanted him to be sat. And the director was talking to Einstein and I was standing there just holding my little camera trembling 
<laughs> and the conversation was interesting because we, they were shooting in 16 millimeter film and Einstein asked the director uh, how many feet per second per second went through the camera and the director replied with all the technical knowledge and Einstein just sat there quietly listening and then said at the end, ah, yes, now I understand. Thank you very much. Hmm. You put the director and at I ease. Thought that was pretty, pretty modest of hmm. a genius. Yeah. Did he strike you as being a genius when you talked, when you were talking or when you were listening to him talk? Well, he was just like a normal person, you know, hmm. and he, he was very quiet and didn't make a fuss or anything. He was very gentle. Mm. And you did get a very iconic picture, which we'll put up on our website, obviously crediting you, because it is iconic. I've sent you a profile of him smiling. Mm. Mm. I, the There is another photograph, which I'm using in my exhibitions, which is a full front photograph. But I rather like the smiling one because it's it's a little bit different. And I thought you might like that. Oh, absolutely. I'm sure our listeners, when they look at our website, will be in, in wondrous awe looking at this and, and listening to you talking about taking Einstein's picture. It's incredible. And then, you know, so that must have been a bit of a, a major breakthrough for you in your career. And then it sort of took off from there, didn't it? I mean, the next wonderful story is when you capture that fantastic picture of Indira Gandhi walking up the steps to her plane and you were be inside. What, how did that arise? Was that opportunistic or fate again? Well, that was many years later. You know, many things happen because of other things. And I went to Europe following taking the Einstein photograph because I had a friend, a woman friend, who found that her husband was cheating on her. She went to him and he said, well, I have to sort myself out. Why don't you go to home to your mother while I sort myself out? Mm -hmm. And she said, no way. I am going to go to Paris and I'm going to take Marilyn with me and you mm -hmm. are going to pay for it. Wonderful. So my first trip to Paris was actually due to male infidelity. <laughs> it's quite ironic, isn't it? I hope you spent loads of money. <laughs> we did. We had a lovely time. And then, of course, I fell in love with Paris and I just had to go back again. <laughs> and so I did go back again. I mean, I went home and sorted out all, you know, things at home and then went back to Paris and uh, stayed there until... I got married and um, then traveled around a bit because my husband was a foreign correspondent. And, and uh, then I went back again for a while. So lots of adventures. And ultimately, in all of this, way down the line, came Indra Gandhi. Mm -hmm. Because I had met through chance an Indian writer. Mm. And I sort of wonder whether or not there have not been metaphorical angels on my shoulder, guiding me, pushing me, making my life 
go in directions which I honestly had not planned for. Mm. I would make a plan to go in one direction and find myself going in another. Mm. And I never could figure out why. So I just say it's the metaphorical leprechauns at the bottom of the garden (laughs) or the angels on my shoulder. I don't know. Well, certainly the hand of fate and also your ability to spot opportunity and be brave enough to take it and follow your gut instinct, I would say. Well, I don't know. Maybe it was bravery. Maybe it was just stupidity. (laughs) You know, I don't know. But I did have the opportunity when I went back to the States and then returned back to Europe. I went first to France and then from there I took a ferry boat to England. And while I was on the ferry boat, uh, sitting there speaking to somebody, as young people do, a funny little Indian gentleman wearing a cap and a khaki jacket sat down next to me and butted into the conversation. And we started talking. And he said he was a writer. And I said, oh, that's very interesting. I have a list of books here, which were given to me by a friend in New York, because they were penguin books. They were not available in the United States because of copyright. And I've been asked to pick them up in London. Um, When I go there, could you tell me where I might find them? And he looked at the list and said, oh, they're all my books. You're not serious. That's incredible. It is incredible. And he he was an Indian writer, writing in English, called Mulk Raj Anand. Mm-hmm. And he's a very famous writer. And we became friends. And he became my guardian angel during my whole life. And every place that I would go, because he would come from India from time to time to do his work, researching or whatever... And he said, I think you must go to India and you must do a a photographic story a day in the life of Indira Gandhi. And that's how it all started. And I did. In 1972, went to India and um, she had agreed and, or I went to Bombay first to drive from Bombay to Delhi to meet her. And during the time that I was driving from Bombay to Delhi, one of the world's shortest wars took place. She declared war against Pakistan for its treatment of what eventually became Bangladesh. And by the time the war was over and I had arrived in Delhi, she was the victor. So it was a totally different story that I was going to do. Hmm. So I actually did two stories. One, following her around um, India after the war, when she gave various um, talks to the army and to mass rallies and went to visit and console the wounded soldiers in the hospitals. But she also received me at home, and I met her family, 
and uh, took photographs of her both at home and while she was traveling. So I have the photograph of her boarding the plane, which was my first meeting with her. Mm, I love that photograph. You're looking, it's almost like the person looking at that photograph is looking through your lens and you're seeing her <laughs> expression and the people looking longingly after her. It's very powerful. It's a really good shot. Oh, thank you. Mm. Thank you. Well, that must have been fascinating. And how did that influence you then? Did you want to do more? Did you want to be like Indira Gandhi? Did she inspire you? And where did this passion for changing the world come? Was that a, a seminal moment? No, I didn't have that feeling about her. I was uh, in admiration for what she did. Um, she worked very hard, but um, I never wanted to be like her. But um, the visit to India inspired me to want to go back again and do more photographs and uh, with the help and suggestions of Mulkwajanand, I did go back about six or seven times. Uh, he was editor of a beautiful book called Marg, which is The Way, The Path. And he was doing an edition of Marg on a place called Hampi. And Hampi is someplace, if you ever can go to India, please, you must go to. It is a wonderful ruin. When you approach it by car, you come across, a pl you're on a, in a plane, and you suddenly see at the end, of, in the distance, this pile of rocks coming up. And all you see are these huge boulders. And you go through a gateway, finally, and you enter into a world which was created out of boulders. And there are huge temples and uh, pools where people bathe. There's about seven or eight miles of winding river from one end to the other. Mm. And there are temples along the way and places where pilgrims stopped. And it's quite a, a magical place. And I did a, an, a whole issue of Marg on Hampi and went back to India then another few times and wanted to do something on a very interesting uh, subject, which was a gotol. Now, a gotol is just a little place to rest. It's a little house, a little cottage. But this particular gotol was very interesting because it was a village in the forest, which was the home of a tribe that were Mulk used to say, living in a past. It was living in a prehistoric past. Like Amish community, would you describe it? Maybe like, oh, are the Newfoundland people who are very much more preserved in their Irish traditions than Irish people? Is, is that sort of a sense? No, I think it was quite different from that. Okay. These were forest dwellers and they lived in the forest and... The children, at the age where they could recognize the parents having sexual relations, were sent away to live together in this 
thing called a gotel. And the gotel was a enclosed area and there was a little house there and a large space in front of the house where the children danced and played, but also in the house where they slept together, all of them. Mm. And the way it was designed was to teach them what life was going to be like when they were adults, really. And so it was kind of like a boarding school because the elder boys were were the ones who directed everything. But working down the scale, the obligation was that each person in the gotel took a partner and that partner became their sexual partner. Mm. And they learned about sex and about living together. Now, some of the gotels around would have rules where the children had to change partners every three or four days so that everybody had a chance. Others, they had a gotel partner for life. And the sadness was, of course, when at puberty, they left. And then they went into the forest village of adults where they had to have an arranged marriage, which was the overlay of the Hindu society. All of this has been written by a marvelous man called Verrier Elwin, and he wrote a book called The Kingdom of the Young. He was, I think, an English uh, missionary, and he discovered all of this, and his book was very popular. And he stayed in India, and I think he married one of the Gotel children eventually. I'm not sure. But my friend wanted to make a film, you see, about this. So I was sent there to take stills, which I might bring back to England to interest people into making a film. And to my great distress, I went to see somebody at SOAS, and I can't remember his name. He was the big man, uh, anthropologist at SOAS, to ask him would he be interested in working on this kind of film. And uh, he said no, because the BBC is now making a film on it. Oh, but it must have been such a distressing subject. It It is. And the BBC did do a film, and I have a copy of it, uh, which I will show you at some point. But they had lots of problems on it because the woman who wrote a book about it resigned afterwards because she said things were not being done properly. It was a whole thing. And um, at any rate, it was a very interesting uh, venture for me. And I have some photographs of myself with some of the children of the Gotel. But I learned later that um, most of the people that I had photographed, their whole living area in the forest had been destroyed. And uh, there was uh, this war between wanting the wood of the forest and therefore getting rid of the people. And also the Maoists who came in uh, to support the people and who did their overlay of supporting them while also 
saying that their way of life was not really good. And it, it was just dreadful. I mean, this whole community has been destroyed. Well, you see, it's fascinating because you have traveled and you've lived, you know, and seen so much. You have seen communities like this disappear in your lifetime. You've seen wars, you know, appear and disappear like you've described with Indira Gandhi. And also you've you've witnessed other um, women who are quite passionate about their causes, like Signora Saria. Now, that's a very fascinating story. And I'm sure that inspired you because she was a courageous woman like yourself and, and stood up for her, her son's memory, didn't she? Oh, yes. Oh, she was a fantastic woman. You know, I have had the pleasure and honor of meeting some wonderful people. You know, may I backtrack at one point when I went to France uh, in the early 50s, 60s, I was needing a job and I got a job singing in a very upmarket dinner club. And there I met a lot of people. I met Bob Kappa there and um, I also met Eleanor Roosevelt. Mm. And if one wants to kick oneself in the in the backside, can you imagine meeting Eleanor Roosevelt and not taking her photograph? <laughs> but it might have been considered impolite and it may not have been the right time or the moment. It's just that I wasn't a photographer then. Interesting. Oh, gosh. gosh. You know, you have to think like a photographer. Mm. Mm. But after all, you trained as an actress. You you weren't in that frame of mind. You you evolved into a photographer. Mm. Yes, exactly. Thank you for understanding. Yeah. But you were a photographer when you you, you took Signora Saria's picture, and, and yes. this we will and put up on our I, website. It's incredible. Well, I I met her when I was living in Rome. Uh, my husband's uh, newspaper had sent us there, and I met the writer Carlo Levi, who had been during the war an anti-fascist and very much against uh, Mussolini and had uh, been caught distributing tracts against Mussolini and sent to the furthest terrible distressed areas of Sicily at the time. And he wrote a wonderful book called Christ Stopped at Eboli. It was about his experience in this dreadful place. And um, when I went to Rome, I was introduced to him by the Indian writer Mulk Rajanand. He was a, a painter, a writer, a doctor, and we decided that we were going to do a book together of Italian celebrities and intellectuals. And it was he who brought Signora Sario to my apartment in Rome because he wanted, he was supporting her alongside many of the Italian intellectuals in her case against the mafia, which she had brought because they killed her son. She and her son were very poor. She was illiterate. We don't even know if her son, if she was married or not, but her son and herself worked as seasonal grape pickers, olive pickers on the estate of a Sicilian princess. 
those estates were managed by the local mafia. And the Socialist Party of Italy at that time wanted to unionize the pickers. And Serio's son was a union organizer. And he was threatened by the mafia because they didn't want that. They, they of course, wanted to keep the wages low. And so he was threatened, told his mother, and when his body was found with the marks of the mafia all over him, she was not very happy about it. And along with the Socialist Party and the Communist Party and many, many intellectuals in Italy, she brought the mafia to trial, which is madness. One little illiterate lady bringing this group of people to trial. And Carlo Levi brought her to my flat in Rome, where I photographed her. And then he and I went to Palermo when the trial was on. And I was fortunate enough to be there and see her in front of the cage that the mafia were sitting behind. And unfortunately, I was so nervous that the film didn't go through my camera and I didn't get any photographs. Oh my goodness. This is one of the horrors of my life. But you do get that stunning picture. It's focusing in on her face and her hands and she's got this yes. little medal, which presumably yes. is her son's face. And it is such a part. You just need that one image. It tells the whole story now that you put words to it. Yes. She was quite a marvellous lady. Mm. And you know, the interesting thing, the mafia could not go after her. Why was that? Well, it would have proven guilt. I see. They, they were uh, proven guilty during a first trial. And then the second trial was held and they were found innocent. Mm -hmm. But strangely enough, the man who actually did the bad job of killing the son, he was murdered by the mafia so that he couldn't tell their tale. Hmm. But nobody, nobody touched the mother at all because that obviously would have been, you know, proof. Well, she obviously had angels on her shoulders to keep her safe after such a courageous act. Well, she became what they called in, in, in Italy, they called her the Antigone of Italy. Interesting. And she lived for quite a few years. Nobody touched her. And um, I'm not sure when she died, but um, she's quite a national heroine. Mm. But you're you're creating more heroines through your photographic awards, switching gears a little bit now, Marlon, because you've set up this amazing award. And I, I think you said that this year's theme was sustainability and it's for women who want to change the world and who've already showed promise and action or have annotated how they would do that. And so the award is for their photographic skills. Is, isn't that right? Yes. I set up the award about five years ago. And the object was a number of things. One, to, to give a small amount of money because there wasn't much at the time, and I'm still 
hoping to get more, but to give some money to help women who are working on stories which are relevant to today, which show a problem which is either being worked on or discussed or has been and could be solved, and to show ways of solving this problem. And the first winner of this award was to help them, help the photographer, the woman photographer, because having been a single mother, I know that I was not able to do a lot of work because of my child and caring for my child and not having enough money possibly to care for the child, to leave her with somebody when I went away. And so I wanted to help women to to do the work they wanted to do. And the first woman winner was a an English woman. And she was living in India, working for Agence France Presse. And she was in her spare time going to Kashmir to photograph the effects of post-traumatic stress disorder on the people. She was doing this with, you know, on her back, her own back, Mm -hmm. and um, showing what was being done, what help was being given to them or not being given to them. And her pictures are so beautiful. And there was no question of her winning. And when asked what she did with the money, she said it allowed her to pay for a driver Hmm. who opened doors for her, but also protected her when she went into areas of danger. So that was rather wonderful. And there were other young women, a young woman from Turkey, whose story was about the young Syrian girls who were in as refugees in Turkey, who were being sold by their families into marriage because the family needed the money. Mm. And there was a marvelous series of photographs by a Russian woman photographer who lives in London, who every year went to the North Pole to show the work that was being done on climate change. Mm. All different areas. So you picked different themes. It was their their choice. And we, we judged on the basis of the photography, of course. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this year... It was on grains and different use of grains and growing grains. And the second winner was a woman who was doing stories about stillborn babies. So there were all different kind of stories. Well, picking you up there, I'm going to be interviewing another lady at the end of this week, Cassandra Coburn, who's the editor-in-chief of The Lancet Healthy Longevity. And she's written a book, yes, a fascinating book called Enough, and it's about the planet diet. Basically, the theory is you eat what's good for you, which will be good for the planet. And it just reminded me a little bit about, you know, um, your theme of the grains. Yes. Well, I think the theme is the same. 
Yeah. And also, you know, that brings us to to health because, you know, what you put into your body can potentially, we've heard that from Tim Spector in a previous episode of my podcast when I interviewed him, he said, you know, food is our new destiny. And you're here and you've lived, you're 96 now, you've permitted me to disclose your age, such an personal um, detail, but I think it's something to be celebrated. And and you have dealt um, with illness yourself and also you've dealt with the stresses of having to make a living using your photography. You know, you've said you've survived in spite of the art, not because of the art. And I wonder if you have any words of wisdom on on what helps you live a longer, healthier life and, and how is it that you, despite everything, in spite of, of all the challenges, you're going strong, even stronger. I've asked myself this question because I knew you were going to ask me. And um, <laughs> of course, the first thing that came to my mind was when asked what his secret of success for a long life was, Churchill replied, just keep breathing. Yes. <laughs> and <laughs> I suppose I suppose that implies everything that just breathing means, you know. But if you've got a lung condition, it's hard to keep just breathing. <laughs> well, yes, I've been very lucky, I guess. Um, everything that I've suffered is not huge. It's just enough to let me know, to keep me on track, mm, mm, you mm, know? Mm. And you had good medical care. And I know you have a very good eye surgeon as well. You shared with me Masood, our lovely mutual friend, who is the most kind and caring gentleman and a creative spirit himself. Oh, yes. And I want you to know that Masood used to get up. I think he still does every morning. And at 4.30 goes out with this huge 400 millimeter lens. You know how big and heavy that is. And... He would send me most delightful emails of his shoots in the morning, which I I think is <laughs> so beautiful. Well, for those of people listening, we should mention it's Mr. Masood Timery, consultant ophthalmic surgeon in Sussex. And, yes. and he sends me those some shots as well. And they're incredible shots of the moon. I mean, I can't believe it's it's from um, his camera. It's It's quite incredible, isn't it? It's his lens. It's that mm. 400 millimeter lens, mm. which you mm. need a tank to, to carry. <laughs> <laughs> well, that might be his secret to, to living long and healthy is capturing the beauty around you. And in this series, I've been really doing a deep dive into what is the art of living? And if I could just summarize for a moment, I mean, you know, this is probably one of the longest interviews I've done, but, you know, I feel that you have so much to say, Marilyn. It's so inspiring. I, I simply can't stop this interview prematurely. But if I could just summarize at this point, you have a very creative spirit. You've grabbed opportunity. You have been brave. You've sought out, you've embraced what's come your way. And as you say, you have that little angel on your shoulder and fate has dealt you a good hand, but also you've had your challenges, but you've risen to the challenges and, and life has been good giving you some wonder people to photograph, but you've learned from them. And I think you're, the stories you've told us today, especially Signora Saria, I mean, that must have influenced you. And here you are giving back and at your stage in life, releasing your book, planning exhibitions. I mean, it is all quite fantastical, to be honest with you, and a source of inspiration to my listeners as we kind of discover what is the art of living a healthier life and, and a longer life, you, you, may, you may have an illness, but you can still feel well and you can still, you know, try and 
do the best you can every day. And, and you, you've explained this to us carefully. So I think you should give yourself a massive pat on the back because what you've achieved is, is more than many people would achieve in 10 lifetimes, let alone one. Well, it's kind of you to say that. And I am wondering if anybody wants to see any of my photographs. I've been honored to have an exhibition which is opening on the 12th of August at uh, Chittingly, the home of at Farley Farm, which was the home of Lee Miller mm-hmm. and Sir Roland Penrose. Mm-hmm. And then next year, during the Festival of Brighton, I shall be having another exhibition at the Brighton Museum and also at a marvellous place called Dimbola House. Do you know Dimbola House? I don't. No, I don't, Marilyn. One of England's most wonderful, innovative women photographers was a Victorian lady called Julia Margaret Cameron. And she worked with a huge, big box, a huge, big camera, which had glass plates. And she used to make the liquid that goes on the plate. She made all of that herself. And she's a very, very famous. She was one of the most famous women photographers, an early photographer and Mm. a woman. Mm. And I have an exhibition that's on there now, uh, which is fashion exhibition. And next year they will have my retrospective exhibition. So I'm feeling very honored that uh, there will be some uh, shows that people can go and see now. And I'm just hoping with luck and a little bit of persuasion, I'll be able to show in Cambridge. It would be wonderful. And we'll certainly do our very best to see if we can make that happen. Now, Marilyn, I'm going to just say a huge special thanks on behalf of myself, all my listeners and all those female photographers out there. You've done lots for women photographers and it's really nice to see you flying that flag. And thank you so much for giving up so much time tonight. I really appreciate it. Well, it's been just delightful talking to you and I feel I've sort of went over the time limit and hope that you will do a lot of nice editing. (laughs) There's no time limit. Well, thank you so much, Marilyn. And thank you to my listeners. I hope you've enjoyed that as much as I've had and that you've learned a little bit about how to live life long and to the full and for as long as Marilyn has. And please do have a look at her website. And if you are in anywhere near Chittingly, drop into her exhibition and I'm sure there'll be a copy of her book there also. She might even sign it for you. And join me next week when I interview Cassandra Coburn who is, as I mentioned and alluded to, the editor-in-chief of Lancet Healthy Longevity, has released a book called Enough. I'm really, really excited to interview Cass. Um, She's an inspirational character too. As always, if you want to leave any feedback or drop us a review on Apple Podcasts, please reach out to us at hello at livelongerthepodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.